Let's start with prayer tonight, and uh, we have, uh, we want to lift up Gina Brookshire, but we've got some good reports. She is, they, they kind of started waking her up today. They've tried to wake her up a couple days, but it hadn't been good. She'd been combative and kind of out of her mind, but they woke her up today or started waking her up, and she's responding to commands, and um, she had, uh, is recovering from bacterial meningitis, which is the worst kind but it's not the contagious kind. So there's a subset of bacterial that's not contagious, but is as threatening. So they caught it in, in time. And man, I, when I first visited with uh, Trey and Gina there at the hospital, Gina was knocked out and intubated and everything. And Trey was pretty upset and he's a surgeon. So when the surgeon gets upset, you know, and concerned, it was a, it was a serious deal, so. We have a lot to be thankful for that she's recovering, but she's not completely out of the woods yet. So we want to lift them up and pray for them. And uh, let's pray for our study tonight. Anything else that y'all are thinking of we need to need to lift up tonight? Anything on your hearts? Robert transition? Robert adjustment? Parent adjustment? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got a really official title. I mean, it's pretty awesome looking. I saw that title and I said, "Phew." Now that's a title. Then you tell me your title over there. Didn't you send me an email that had like these all these things at the bottom of your email? It had all these things at the bottom of your email and I said, "Man, Jamie has Yeah, I was really impressed. That's cool. You'll sign autographs later? Yeah. All right. Cool. We'll, we'll thank God for that. Good. Well, let me pray. <clears throat> God, we look forward to our time together in the Word tonight. We uh, pray for an attentiveness and um, just pray for treasures as we consider um, Abram and Sarai and what they faced and their journey of faith and their um, bad decisions and good decisions and how you're faithful. And I just pray that we can see ourselves in this story and that we can learn the lessons that, um, that they learned without the heartache and uh, that we can bring glory to you as a result. Um, Lord, we also tonight, we just have a lot to be thankful for with Gina and Trey. And we just pray for a continued recovery. And thank you for um, uh, quality care on the part of the physicians and her responsiveness to antibiotics. And uh, Lord, we just pray for um, a quick recovery. Thank you so much for your your tender care over this family. Uh, Lord, we also thank you for Jamie's new position. Just what a blessing. What a new new opportunity and um, freeing her up for so many things. And just pray that, that you'll just, uh, that that, will, that new position will be a ministry. Not just a job, but an opportunity to, to be salty and bright and aromatic and enjoy you between Sundays. Um, Lord, we also pray for little Robert. Just pray for his transition and... Um, for Lowell and Trisha's transition, uh, parenting a young two-year-old. And uh, Lord, just pray that you'll be glorified in the sweet picture of the gospel and uh, the work of adoption. And um, we just counted a, a sweet privilege to participate in that and walk with that and walk with them. Pray for Aaron and Stephanie Hamilton also. Just pray for, for Stephanie's continued recovery and their transition with Little Ion. And um, pray that he too will will uh, connect with his family and that you'll be glorified in the way that family grows and
and enjoys you. And um, again, we thank you just for so many pictures of the gospel being lived out. And uh, we turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> title of tonight's study is um, <coughs> appropriately the day before Valentine's Day is called How Not to Treat Your Sweetheart. Okay, so we'll, you'll figure out why here in a moment if you didn't have a chance to read it ahead or read ahead and look at it. Uh, before, I wanna, before I get into this, I want to just briefly share a verse from Sunday morning. I, uh, <coughs> I shared in an email, some of y- most of y'all probably got this email I sent out on Monday morning. It's funny, uh, uh, Martin Luther said that you need to be prepared to step into the jaws of the devil if you're going to preach every week. Which uh, I told Christy, I've never had a sense of darkness and spiritual warfare like I have since beginning to preach four years ago. There's a very real, um, uh, it's, it's, it's just impossible to even explain. Um, but usually on Monday mornings, Sunday afternoons and Monday mornings, I'm trying to kind of reconcile what, was, what happened in our preaching event and what took place. And I was really troubled after Sunday morning, and I think I figured out why. It was just because I had this, and continue really to have this mindset that there was a severe disconnect between the glory of the, the gospel and what was actually being shared. You know, the distance between what I was trying to express. But one of the things that I really, really wanted to bring out, and um, it's worth revisiting again, Exodus chapter 33, excuse me, chapter 34. It's really kind of the point of the whole couple of Sundays there between the first part where we left without singing and the next part where we ended nearly shouting in song um, is this verse and how this thing reconciles. When Moses asked uh, God to show him his glory and God said, okay, here's, here's how I'm going to do that. And he reveals his glory and his name he says to him, says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, in verse 6 of chapter 34. A God merciful, now just hear these things, merciful. A God gracious. A God slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If you really take those things in, you're saying, man, that's my kind of God. You really are. That, that kind of God is real easy. That's an easy sell, too. And that's really the, the gospel presentation for most of contemporary Christianity. I mean, if you think about it, this benevolent cocoa God. I'm okay with cocoa God, but that's not all there is to God. When I say cocoa God, you know the picture... Drinking cocoa, wearing the old man T-shirt, you know, kind of forgetful like, just crawl up on in my lap. I'm, I'm uh, slow to anger, uh, faithful. I'm forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But that second part is where things really come together. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity. Remember, he's just said forgiving iniquity. But yet I'm going to be visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If you really spend some time on that verse and you spend some time in the Ten Commandments where he said, I'm jealous. You know, it's the same thing he presented there in the Ten Commandments, both of the bookends to the wilderness experience. If you really spend some time on that, then you have to start scratching your head, go, wait a second. 
those don't fit. Coco God, benevolent, um, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but yet visiting iniquity. They just don't work. And the only way they fit, the only way they reconcile is what? The cross. <laughs> it's, he's created a 1,500-year itch here where the Jews are going to read this and go, not just scratching their head, but really an itch. Like, uh, where's, how does this work? I'm trying to figure out how this works. And they got this itch that they can't scratch. They can't quite get to in the middle of their back. And then there's the cross. And then that 1,500-year itch is scratched where they understand, okay, that's how that God fits with that God. It's one God, and he's not Sybil with multiple personalities. He's not capricious. In fact, he's holy, and we're sinful. And the way that he is abounding in steadfast love, faithful, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, is in the cross and the empty tomb. So the shepherd shepherds most effectively when that is not foundational. Now, let me explain that. I've shared this before. John Piper has this great illustration. He, he was preaching to a seminary, which is an appropriate place to preach this message. He's preaching to a bunch of seminary folks about their classwork, about the gospel kind of being foundational. Well, that's a given. You know, we're teaching Greek. You know, we're not going to talk about the gospel all day. We've got to teach Greek. We're assuming that everybody's got the gospel. And he said, you know, he said, I just have a hard time with that. He says, because my foundation is dark and cold and damp and forgotten on my house. And then it's on top of that foundation that I eat in the kitchen and I have conversation in the den and I sleep in the bedroom. And all the while, what's foundation? I mean, who's, th- who's thinking about their foundation all day? Nobody. It's out of mind, out of sight. You're, not, you're walking on top of it. He said, do not treat the gospel as foundation foundational that gospel has got to become the very room that you dine in the room that you sleep in the table that you sit in as you talk the couch that you rest on that's worship that's believing when that gospel becomes the thing if it's ever foundational or ever understood then it's not being enjoyed and it's not worship so the shepherd that says hey just tell me what i need to do just give me my how to's and say, oh, I already got the gospel thing. Tell me how to shepherd. <laughs> we got to go back and say, okay, take the first thing you just said, and let's go back to that. You don't ever have the gospel. You don't ever get, okay, I got that down. It's in enjoying the gospel that you shepherd. It's not a resource for shepherding. And this sounds kind of trite because it, it rhymes. It's the source for shepherding. You understand what I'm saying? It, it is how you shepherd. So the shepherd that's just assuming it is not enjoying it and will not be shepherding eternally and shepherding to the heart. So that's something you can gnaw on for a while. I mean, I have to go back and be reminded about that because I have to go back. I need iron sharpening iron. I need a people that are bumping elbows with me saying, hey, man, let's not forget. Let's not assume the gospel. Let's not assume the cross. Let's go back and kneel at it. Let's bathe in the blood. Let's enjoy the marvel that grace should reach so low. Let's be amazed that we're related or were related to old Adam, but that because of his grace and mercy, now we're related to the new Adam that did not sin and that went to the cross on our behalf. That's worth getting excited about. That is the source for shepherding, not a resource for shepherding.
a little side note from last week. Okay, now, again, the title of this message is How Not to Treat Your Sweetheart, this lesson. All right, you'll understand why in a minute. Let me acquaint you with the setting before we climb into it. We're in, in Genesis chapter 12, and just for the sake of context, uh, let me give you a little bit of background. Let me turn there. Abram is part of, remember, we even went over this on Sunday, he's part of a moon-worshipping pagan family. Okay, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2 tells us that. Remember our forefathers, they worshipped other gods over across the Euphrates. Now, he's rescued like a recon team does an extraction, a direct action mission, and comes in and does a, a rescue mission and plucks him right out of paganism. He has a rescue mission. He pulls him out of paganism. He calls him and sends him to a new land. So Abram, being the faithful father that we hope that he is, okay, he goes. That's what we looked at last week. He goes, just God said halak, and what did he do? He halaked. That's right, man. I mean, just to the letter. And in fact, he went right into the promised land. Where did he go? Did he go to the edge? Did he kind of hang out at the fringes? Homeboy went smack dab to the center to Shechem, which is the center of Canaan, which is just sweet. I mean, he hit the bullseye. God said, go to the promised land, and that's what he did. He makes a beeline to the center, and what does he do along the way? You remember? Every place he camped out, he worshipped. How, what, 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 how, how did he worship? What did he do? He built altars, man. He's worshiping all over the place, man. I got to, okay, we're going to camp here tonight. We got to make sure we got our altar set up because we're going to be worshiping every step we go. Things are looking good, man. This, this whole father of a new people thing and this whole inherit a new land thing is going great. But there's a wrinkle. And the wrinkle is what we're going to look at tonight. Chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. Now remember, this is the promised land. The land that your, your, your children, great-grandchildren, your people... Numerous as the stars and the dust, the one that they're going to inherit. There's a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. How old is Sarah right here? She's about 65. She was, I think, 10 years behind Abram. So she like Farrah Fawcett or something. I mean, how do you do it? I, I mean, without all the, the medical assistance. She's just beautiful. 65 years old. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. You kind of hear how Abram's thinking right now. He's in Abram protection mode. All right, we're going to kind of study this a little bit in a minute. He says to her, okay, here's the scheme, the, the wife-sister uh, save my own behind scheme. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, she was his sister. Not, not an immediate sister, but a half-sister. They had the same father, who's Terah, by a different mother. So, he's not lying, <laughs> but he's misrepresenting who she is, really, ultimately. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me, it's about him, because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. We're going to talk about that on Sunday. We're not going to hit for your sake quite yet because that's going to come up this coming Sunday. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. 
And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. What's, what's the group of women that Pharaoh's married to called? Huh? No, it's a group, harem. Yeah. Come on in here. She, she's, she's added to the harem. Okay, I mean, he says that, that she, she says, I took her for my wife down in the verse we're about to read. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I mean, can you just envision Abram right here? I mean, how could he accept all that trash? I mean, his wife is in a harem of Pharaoh. He's protect, He's living. But is he? Re- could you imagine that he's really living? I mean, you think he's just studying his donkeys and his servants. Hey, man, look at this. This is great. How would you feel? Man, you talk about feeling like dirt. We don't know. There's not a commentary on how he feels. But I can imagine that he's feeling like quite the loser right now. All right? It says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? How do you think he knew that she was his wife? What do you think? What are the possibilities? Yeah, I think that, I mean, he could have had a vision or something. You know, a vision from the Lord, Sarai is Abram's wife. He could have, but I think Sarah probably said, look here, I need to tell you something. Hopefully, and I imagine before there was some sort of consummated marriage there. I mean, I'm hoping, I'm expecting that's what happened. And so he, he calls Abram, he says, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? So, I mean, you can imagine what he had in store. I mean, this, he was going to consummate a marriage here. Hopefully, Sarah intervened. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And chapter 13, verse 1 says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Okay. Let me just kind of develop the bird's eye view. I don't need to develop it. I just want to pull out kind of the details. I want to make sure we got this. God has promised offspring and land to Abram. Okay, we've established that. Okay, that's the promise that he's made. But there's some problems. There's severe famine in the land that he's promised to him. So Abram leaves the land, and Abram fears for his life, so he comes up with this wife-sister protect my behind scheme, and he, he devises this foolish scheme. And Sarah ends up in Pharaoh's harem, and the Lord graciously intervenes. And he returns them to the promised land. Now, there are three of these stories in, in Genesis. Two of them with Abram and Sarai. Later, it's Abraham and Sarah. Do you might know what the other story is? The wife, sister-wife deception scheme? Quizzing your Old Testament knowledge, your Genesis knowledge. No? That, that was a deception. But it involved Abimelech, and who'd you say? Rebecca. Rebecca and Isaac. The same thing, like father, like son. Isn't that funny? I mean, think about this. But here's, here's the deal. There's, there's this one here. There's one in chapter, if you want to read these, they have incredible 
parallels. I mean, in two cases, they have to do with famine. In two cases, they deal with Abimelech. In two, there's like this weird thing where in two, when you're looking at them all three side by side, they have two matches, two matches that fit all over the place. And they're so, so similar and comparable that, that, that people that study this and study their original language think that they existed as a literary unit, all three of these stories. And, you know, the title would be The Wife-Sister Deception Scheme. I don't know. It's just weird that these three things are so similar. And I think I've got an idea what God is up to that we'll look at here in a moment of why these things actually unfolded the way they folded, unfolded and what they're a picture of. Be thinking right now about what this symbolizes when Sarai goes off into Pharaoh's harem and she's delivered. That's all the clues I'm going to give you. You'll have to figure that, that out in a minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, let me ask you this. Consider Abram. Let's talk about Abram first. We're going to talk about Sarai in a minute. But let's talk about Abram. Uh, I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Because the question I'm about to ask you, you'll need to have 1 through 9 fresh on your mind. Okay, listen to this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from, now watch Abram, watch the football, the football's Abram. Watch what he does and how he moves, the things that he does, things like that. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now listen, let's watch the football. So Abram halakht, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came into the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, <clears throat> what's different about the Abram of the first nine verses than the verses that we're looking at tonight? What differences do you see between the two? Well, he's moving. He's moving to Egypt in the second one. So he's still moving. He's moving in a different direction, though. That's a good... He's, he's uh, done an about-face. Not, not necessarily an about-face, because he wasn't coming from Egypt in the first place. But. Okay. Okay. What else? What else do you see? Okay. Okay. Seems to be... We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Good. He seems to be have, have been walking by faith in the first nine verses, but in the verses we're looking at tonight, walking by sight. Now, what, what indications do you have of that? In the verse nine, first, verse, first nine verses, what do you see Abram doing that you don't see him doing in the passages we're looking at tonight? Okay. Where's the temple stuff? I mean, the, the altar stuff. He's not building any altars, man. In the first nine verses, he's setting up camp. Man, let me, let's put up an altar. We're going to worship. And, and, and what does it say there in 
um, verse 8 or 9. No, yeah, verse end of verse 8. He called upon the name of the Lord. You don't see any of that in verses 10 through 20. You don't see him calling upon the name of the Lord. He's not building any altars. I, I was kind of thinking about this. It's kind of like, you remember the, the old, um, no, I'm going to save that. No, here it is. You remember the old Wendy's commercials? With the old lady, where's the beef? I was looking at this saying, where's the worship? Where are the altars? Where's the calling upon the name of the Lord? What happened? And homeboy's walking by sight now rather than walking by faith. And he's walking by what he sees and what he's experiencing right in front of him what, rather than what God has promised him. Here's a spiritual, well, you don't see any, any interaction between God and Abram in these verses at all. None at all. Now, here's a clue or a couple clues to what he's doing. Well, I'm going to ask you a question see if you can find it. There, there's a clue of what he's doing spiritually. Where I began reading in verse 10 and where I ended reading in chapter 13, verse 1. There are clues of what he's doing spiritually. What are those clues? There's one in where, where we began reading and one where we ended reading in chapter 13, verse 1. I'll teach y'all to do some good Bible study. It's good. I'm telling you. You've got to look for physical movements. What's he doing? I'm going to give you the, the hint. Chapter 12, verse 10. What's he doing there? Okay. He went what? He went down to Egypt. Chapter 13, verse 1. What's he doing? Uh-oh. It's like this elevational movement. It's like bookends on this story. Uh-oh, Abram's stepping away from God right here. He's stepping away from God's blessings as he's going down to Egypt. And he's stepping back into God's blessings as he's coming up out of Egypt. You see those movements? Man, if we can, you take in those little nuances and then you understand what the mind of the original writer's doing there. And we get to God's meaning. And then we're like, oh, okay, I got that. Okay? No small thing where they're moving physically. Bookends. Now, <clears throat> Who should he be fearing? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. We're going to talk about fear in a moment. Okay. What happens when you take your eyes off Christ is a great picture of what we see in Abram right here. Christy and I, uh, probably 10 years ago now, it may have been a little longer than that. Uh, that's probably 10 years ago. We were teaching a Bible study class out in South Carolina for young marrieds and we were young marrieds. You know, the only the, the blind leading the blind, you know, trying to figure out how to be married and all that. And uh, I remember us just really frustrated with how uh, discouraging it could be at times. And we memorized a passage that God uses. It's just proof that God uses memory, Scripture, and he calls it to mind. It's Hebrews chapter 12. I don't know if it's 2 and 3 or 1 through 3, but it's fix your eyes on Jesus. This is the New American Standard Version. To fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our, of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the father consider him who endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart fix your eyes on jesus so that you will not grow weary and lose heart you could given what we're seeing in abram you could also say fix your eyes on yahweh so that you will not go to egypt <laughs> you know fix your eyes on the lord so that you'll not go looking for bread somewhere else 
that you'll trust his providence and his design and his plan. Now, let's look at Abram more. Essentially what he is doing when he leaves the promised land and goes to Egypt, he is stepping away. Listen to this statement. He's stepping away from the stones of God's will and looking for the bread of his will. I'm going to explain what I'm saying there in a moment. But the stones of God's will, he's leaving the stones of God's will and going to look for the bread of his own will. I was thinking about um, severe famine. And uh, I remember back in the days when I experienced severe famine. It really impacted me. You think I've ever experienced severe? Do I look like I've experienced? Have any of y'all experienced severe famine? Man, it's so easy to listen to read the story and just go, "Man, what a loser!" He, he let. But when you don't have anything to eat, it could have been because of drought. It could have been because of uh, sickness of crops or locusts or uh, sickness of uh, critters that they just didn't have anything to eat. And imagine, you know, I'm, I'm asking this question, would I have gone? I, I don't know. But I have to ask this question, though. Now, how many years later? I don't know, four or 5,000 years later, something like that. We can look back and ask the question, should he have stayed in the promised land? We, we can't ask the question, really, would we have? Because I think most of us probably would have jetted going looking for some bread but let's ask the question though should he have stayed in the promised land yes it's the it it, it's a question we've got to ask we've got to climb in the story and understand that yes he should have stayed in the promised land because we've got to ask the next question would god have provided for him yes how could god not have provided for him That was part of the journey. Is he going to send somebody on a journey and not give them the resources and the nourishment to see it through? Yes, God would have provided for him, but he's walking by sight and stomach here rather than walking by faith. The guy that before is making a beeline for Shechem is now making a beeline for Egypt. It's crazy. And I was thinking, trying to take all that stuff in, and we'll talk about buffoons more here in a minute. But uh, I think he's demonstrating that God works with, in unique situations with unique people. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to consider, uh, you know, we've considered this famine and how he responded to this famine. Now I want to show you another famine. Keep your finger in Genesis chapter 12 and turn over to Luke chapter 4. You may not know that there was a famine in Luke chapter 4, but there was a little mini famine or at least a fast. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone, there it is, to be bread. You're going to do your will, or you're going to do the Father's will. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And then you know the rest of the story of the other temptations that the devil took him through. Our Lord went through the same sort of test and did not fail. While Abram failed, our Lord did not. He could have changed those stones 
which were the Father's will, to his own will, and had some bread right then and there on the spot. Could he have done that? Absolutely. But he didn't, and he did not fail. Something that we've got to know and realize is that suffering is part of the journey of faith. It is part of it. Now, Abram didn't have the resource that we have at his point. We'll talk about that in a minute. But realize that suffering is part of the journey of faith. It's part of the pilgrim's perfection process that we go through suffering. If we were spared suffering, we might find ourselves serving God for what we get from him rather than for who he is. I'm going to say that again. If we were spared suffering, we might find ourselves serving God for what we get from him rather rather than for who he is. This has a name. I didn't know it had a name, but it has a name. It's called eudaimonism. I may not be pronouncing it right, but nobody in here would know that, I don't think. Because maybe somebody's going, silly guy, I don't know how to pronounce eudaimonism. But what that word means, it's the practice of right action that leads to well-being. Is that normal? (laughs) Is it? Yeah, that's super normal. Who doesn't want to practice right action to lead to well-being? Somebody that may have a death wish may not, but most people practice right action in hope of well-being on the other end. That's eudaimonism. But we don't follow God like that. That's not a worshiper. That's a purchaser. I'm going to purchase my well-being by following you. That's not worship. Because acts of faith that God calls us to may cost us our very lives. They may cost us everything. He may call us, you know, we teach our kids eudaimonism from the very beginning. God loves you and has a special plan for your life. I think we need to shoot straight with them. I, I know that Jesus loved the little children, so I think we can land there. Man, God loves you, but he may call you to go preach the gospel to a bunch of cannibals and you may be eating for the glory of God might be hard for a three-year-old to digest you'd probably save that for the older children the the youth maybe they can handle that exactly but this picture of uh, I'm going to do this so I'll get good things so I will be happy and healthy and well-fed that's the normal human response worshipers don't operate that way Because acts of faith may cost us everything. They may cause great hardship rather than immediate reward. And when this happens, though, here's the cool thing. When this happens, not if it happens to the believer. It's when this happens to the believer, God develops in the heart of that pilgrim. He develops faith, hope, patience, and upright character. Let me show you a couple of passages. Keep your finger in Genesis 12 and turn to Romans chapter 5. I have friends right now, even in this body, that are handling severe, severe challenges, severe tribulation and suffering, I would call it suffering, in a myriad of different, a continuum of responses. And I'm hoping to encourage those that are at the continuum of faithfulness and to hopefully illuminate those who are at the continuum of, or at the end of the continuum, the other end, that are saying, man, I'm out of here. This is too hard, following God. I'm going to go find my own bread. I'm bailing on the stones. So here's a couple passages I want to share with you. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Listen. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Man, that's all good. We're, we're believers. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Listen to what it says next. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's a hard thing to do. But that's why the people of God are supranormal. We're AB normal. <laughs> the normal don't rejoice in their sufferings. The normal are eudaimonious. That man, if it's not good, if it's not good for me, I'm not going to do it. But that's why we're different. The worshiper says, I can rejoice in my suffering because I know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So that's on our end. This is what happens to us when we endure suffering. So that's why we have a supra normal normal response. Not super, supra, above normal. A-B normal response to suffering. Here's another pass. Go ahead. Eudaimonism? Well, that, I think that, that's an intermediate step. Okay. What, what you just said, desiring a relationship with him for the good things that it brings or the good benefit that it brings, that, that is the early stages. That, that's kind of the, the, um, what I would call the adolescent faith. When, when faith moves to adulthood, it moves beyond the benefit to the beauty. And it says, you know what? <laughs> Man, I just, God, you're just beautiful. You know, and certainly the benefits are enjoyed, just like we remember our childhood and our adolescence. But we think about the things, think about how we responded to our parents as adolescents. You know, man, mom, this is what I want, and mom hooked me up. Daddy, I want this, and daddy hooked me up. I need these things, and my dad loves me, so this is what I've gotten. But then when you mature and you move out of the house, then you kind of start enjoying them for who they are. There, there's a very real uh, journey where you go from enjoying your parents for what they've given you, you know, remember initially it's not even enjoying them. It's just gimme. You know, the, 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 the Robert, gimme. You know, I got a little version of that. The Daniel, gimme, you know. But hopefully they move to um, gimme and I'm in learning to get to know you and then eventually get to the point where you don't have to give me anything. I'm just enjoying you, Dad. I'm enjoying you, Mom, for who you are. And the benefits are certainly there. You know, you know the, those never go away. But there's a beauty sort of thing that it connects to. And that's when, I think it's all a journey of faith, but that's when you can really look at somebody and say, man, that's a worshiper. You know, that's not a consumer. There's a difference between a consumer and a worshiper. A consumer does something so that he will get something. A worshiper just does something. And it's kind of like that guy on the cross, the thief on the cross, remember me? You know, hey, whenever you go into your kingdom, just remember me, please. That sounds like worship. You know, he didn't say, save me. He didn't say, get me down off this cross. He said, just remember me, because you're awesome. You see what I'm saying? Like he had this accelerated faith journey in those few hours that he hung there right beside his Lord. And um, it sounds a lot more like worship. That's a good question. Very good question. I think there's a eudaimonist in every one of us. <laughs> but hopefully the eudaimonist graduates to a worshiper. Did y'all track that? Did, did people track with that? 
Chew on that some. Gnaw on that some. Um, Jonathan Edwards would argue, this guy was a, a, a pastor in the 1700s in the New England area. Led, God used him to kind of lead the Great Awakening of the 1700s. And um, he would argue that you're not a believer until you begin the worship part of it. That if it's a benefits-driven relationship, that you're not a believer. Now, I, I'm not comfortable with that. And I'm re- I was reading Religious Affections where he's explaining that, you know, and he begins the, the book with nobody can really know when God says, okay, now you are on the journey and now you're not. But there are lots of people that they may live and die just wanting their insurance policy. I mean, really, if we think about Greenville, <laughs> that's our context. People that have purchased their insurance policy with an act, but there's no adoration or enjoyment of our, of our Lord are the bride that he sent his son to die for. So are they worshipers? Will they be saved? I don't, I don't know. That's his business, but from the Bible that I look at, I don't know. So he makes a pretty good argument. You know, that um, if you don't move to that place where you're just enjoying him for who he is, or, I, I, let me rephrase that, if you don't move to that place where you primarily enjoying him for his character, for his grace, for his beauty, for his wonder and majesty, then it's, it's a wonder if you've ever begun to worship yet. That's something worth chewing on. Religious affections would be worth reading. If, if some of y'all are just really courageous readers and you'll plow off in anything, get Jonathan Edwards' religious affections. It'll rock your world. It's like swimming in molasses. You know, you read a page and you have to go back and read it about five more times. But it's pretty cool, pretty cool book. That's a long answer to a good question. Let me show you 1 Peter. Now, in Romans 5, 1 through, yeah, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. In Romans 5, 1 through 5, you saw that we can rejoice in our sufferings because they refine us and purify us, right? But it's about us so far. But we can still rejoice just because of what it does in us. That's why we're super normal. We're AB normal. But now look over at 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, I'm not going to read this next little section because I want it to flow, it's kind of a little tangent, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. So the very thing that we're begging him, Lord, please take this off my plate. Lord, please don't let this happen to me is the very instrument that he uses to reveal his son. That's crazy. That's got to be a supranormal. That's got to be a divine resource because we don't have that in us. We can't conjure that up. We can't make that up. It's not something we can muster. That's got to be a God-given understanding and recollection that creates a true joy in the midst of suffering. But Abram wasn't up for that. (laughs) But you know what? The reality is Abram didn't have the resource that we have. What do we have that Abram doesn't have or didn't have? Okay, what else? Okay, what else? The Word. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all those things. The Holy Spirit working through this word to reveal the the rest of the story of Christ crucified and risen. Abram didn't have that record of God's faithfulness 
time and time again. Man, the journey had just begun. <laughs> so it, you know, it's unfair for us to look at our boy Abraham and say, <laughs> you silly rabbit, you shallow spoon, leaving, leaving the stones for the bread. We'd have never done that. I mean, given his situation, and even what we know now, we may have done the very same thing. Let me read one more passage to you, and, there, and then we'll uh, continue. John sixteen thirty three. I got this at the bottom of an email from a friend, from actually from David Ferguson. His mom is going through chemotherapy yet again for I don't know the how many time at this point. She's really hurting right now. And there's John sixteen thirty three, where Jesus says, "I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world." you may have tribulation. No. It's not, or it's not if you have tribulation. It's when you have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. So when you face famine, when you're looking around and all you got is stones, we can trust and know that God is on His throne, and we can trust that the bread will show up in His time. If we're sitting around leaving the stones of God's will for the bread of our will, then we're going to find ourselves spiritually famished. We may find a piece of bread, but that don't last for eternity. I've, I've eaten, and Bob's flatbread is good, but it ain't that good. It's not going to satisfy, satisfy me for eternity. It's good, though. Don't get me wrong. Anytime you want to just bust up some of that, man, you just go for it. <laughs> it's good, but it ain't that good. Okay. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about fear. What's driving Abram? Fear. Okay, that we've talked about it enough to where it's the obvious answer by now. It's not faith, it's fear. What does his fear demonstrate? Let's talk about it. A lack of faith, lack of what other word is so close to faith? Trust, yeah. In the original language, those words are kind of similar. Believe, faith, and trust are all derivatives of the same Greek word. I don't know what it is in Hebrew, but the same Greek word. There's a lack of trust here. He doesn't have the experience with the complete and finished word and the history of the whole story that we've got. All he has is what God has promised him, and for a moment his fear drove him to Egypt, and for a moment his fear drove him to concoct his own scheme to protect his own behind and put his wife in whatever kind of danger she would have been in. His philosophy on the scheme is this, better defiled than dead. That's his philosophy. Better defiled than dead. Like I said, it's easy to think poorly of Abram at this point. Man, just, you've got to climb into this story. If you're married, imagine turning your spouse over to a pagan king so that they could have their way with your spouse. I mean, let's talk about it for what it is. So that they could be, essentially be married to your spouse. And then you're collecting donkeys. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's easy to think poorly of him, but I think right here, I mentioned this earlier, I think this is proof that God works with buffoons. God works with buffoons. I don't like feeling like a buffoon, but I feel like a buffoon often. And it's funny, when I feel most buffoonish and most like a goober is in some weird way the time that he uses me most in my family, in preaching, I, there's not a Sunday that, uh, there are Sundays that go by where I feel like, man, I stroked that one. I stroked that one out of the park. 
I mean, I would never say that, you know. It's kind of a fan. I'm thinking down on the inside, you know. Got that one, God. Boy, you, you sent it to me. I relate it. But then I come find out later, I, I'm like, hey, I'm listening. And it's just silence. You hear the crickets. There's no spiritual movement, you know. Is anybody alive out there? I just stroked it out of the park. And there's nothing. And then there are other times where I just feel like I just want to melt into the concrete. There's no concrete. Melt, melt into the wood and just disappear. And somebody please transport me away from here so I don't have to face anyone after our worship service. And I'll hear back from people that what God did with that preaching. And I'm like, thank goodness he works with buffoons. The reality is when we consider Abraham here is that we're all pretty unreliable and sorry. If you're not comfortable with that statement, I just urge you to read your Bible. <laughs> I don't mean that being mean. I'm just saying the Bible just, it's a mirror and it just tells us who we are. And it just proclaims, the more you study, it actually adds distance. The distance always there, but it adds distance between God and us and you appreciate more and more you study how low grace had to reach. And then you're like, grace is awesome. God is good. It's God's grace that he rescues and redeems any of us. Now, can you think of anyone else that did what Abram did here? Where essentially he feared for his own life, so he became a big chicken? Who? David? Okay, how? That's, that's, that's a, yeah, that's a, a, a story, but I'm not sure that was fear. I think that was driven by lust. And I don't think he feared for his own life, but that, that's good. You're thinking. Peter? Yeah, that's who I was thinking of. Peter. Okay. Kadesh Ravine, yeah. He did run from Jezebel, yeah. He went to the ravine at the beginning of his ministry, though. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I was thinking of Peter, though. Let's, let's consider Peter just, just quickly. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. This is a New Testament version of Abram. And when when this struck me, I just could not believe God's grace. It was just another example. Luke chapter 22. It's really kind of funny. God has such a sense of humor. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. I don't know that's a sense of humor. It just makes, I don't, you know, there's no scripture that says God has a sense of humor. I just, when I look at it through the lens of my own understanding, I just, he just, you understand what people could say, surprise grace. Because it just surprises you when you really take it in. Luke chapter 22, verses 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And you know how the rest of the story went, where in fact he did follow through on being a big chicken. Now here's, here's kind of piecing some things together. W- what does Peter mean? Rock. And what did Jesus tell him when he told him, you, your name's going to be Peter? I'm going to build what on you? <laughs> Are you piecing that together? When I was thinking about that, I, I realized that Essentially, he built a people with one chicken and he founded the church on another chicken. I mean, think about it. 
God, I'm, he just, this Bible just, the whole Bible is a visual of God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. It is an illustration. So there's no room for haughtiness or pride. If we're sitting here walking in the faith, enjoying the gospel, we ought to go just go, man, okay, I'm a foolish thing. <laughs> all right, I'm seeing it. I saw it all over the Bible, so now I'm appreciating that he, in fact, chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. Okay, I'll embrace my foolishness if that's what it takes for you to be glorified. I'm all there. And that's, think about it, that's a cool picture of glory, that he picks the foolish things to confound the wise. He finds the, chooses the chickens to build a people, and he chooses another chicken to build the church. All right, quickly, briefly about Sarai. We'll take a couple minutes. Is it a surprise that she submitted to this scheme, wives? You don't think so, Chris? Would you submit to it if Brad said, hey, Christy, I got this idea. Let's go to uh, Germany. And the king of Germany has, obviously Germany wouldn't work, but think of some feudal system. Or Is there any place that has a king now? Yeah, let's go to Saudi Arabia. I don't think there are many wives that would say, okay, sure, Ben. That sounds like a good plan. Why would she do this is a question that I want you to think about, and we're going to talk about this on Sunday. Sunday, the message is called House Rules. Not house rules, like rules. House rules. Rules for the house of the people of God. And it's from Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. So if you want to read ahead, you can kind of climb into that. And we're going to talk about specifically about Sarai and what she did here and her, her picture of submission. Now, while we don't know how she was treated or if she was violated in some way, there is some indication in, in verse 14 where she's referred to as the woman. She sounds kind of like property there. So we don't expect that it was all great for her. I'm just imagining how it must have felt for her. Think about that. If your man dissed you, like the extraordinary maximum diss, think about it. Hey, babe, I got a plan. <laughs> I kind of want to protect myself. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn you over to the bad guys. And, uh, you know, it, it'll probably sort out, but at least I won't be killed. And then you're in the harem, you know, not knowing what's going to happen from one minute to the next. Think about that. I'm just imagining what, what she must have felt like. And I bet she felt a little bit like Israel felt in Egypt for 400 years. See, there were people that were born. There were Israelites that were born in Egypt when Egypt was in slavery. That were born and cried out their whole lives and died and never found deliverance. For 400 years, the nation of Israel is in Egypt in bondage, in slavery. And they heard the promise that God made to their forefather Abram, to Jacob, furthered on by all these guys in intermediate steps where God reminds them. And then they're finding themselves in, in slavery in Egypt. And I bet they're crying out, God, where are you? What's up? Lord, where are you? I bet she's crying, Abram, where are you? Lord, why have you done this? Abram, why have you let this happen? Now, I want to be real careful about comparing Abram's fear and his decision here for this scheme with God's motive for Egypt because it's a very different motive. But I'm looking at it just from, just from the perspective of Sarai. Sarai is a picture of, of Israel. Israel is the bride of God. Understand that. And here, she is a picture of Israel. Consider these things. Famine drives them to Egypt. 
Okay? It drives the nation of Israel. To, it, it drives jo- Joseph's brother and dad to Egypt. Famine drives Abram and Sarai to Egypt. Both cases, they're held captive. Israel is held captive in slavery there. And um, Sarai is held captive as part of a harem. In both cases, it's by mighty plagues that they are liberated. I mean, word for word, verbatim, mighty plagues. And then in both cases, they leave with great riches. Abram leave, Abram and Sarah leave with great riches. And remember when Israel left Egypt? Egypt was like, here, take all our gold and silver. We don't know why we're doing this, but here, take all our donkeys and our camels. And then Israel is sneaking out over the, not sneaking, they're leaving hastily over the Red Sea with all the riches of Egypt. And this is the same picture here. This is a smaller scale of God showing up as Big D Deliverer, where he's delivering Sarai right here. Smaller scale maybe, but this I think is more critical than even being delivered from slavery in Egypt. Because if Abram and Sarai had not been delivered, there would be no chosen people. So God is protecting the seed. Lastly, what this story tells us about God. What does it tell us about God? It's just one quick answer. Hit it. Somebody's thinking it. What does it tell us about God? He is faithful. faithful. Yes, sir. He is faithful. First Tim, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful faithful man that ministers to me because if his faith toward me if his follow through toward me is dependent on my faithfulness what's what's the reality none of us has a single hope but he's faithful even when we are faithless man that's a great picture of agape love that's not based on worth or performance of the loved it's based on the decision and intention of the lover awesome Awesome. I kept y'all over a couple minutes. Let me dismiss y'all. Lord, thank you for this sweet study tonight. We uh, are encouraged by seeing the failure of a faithful man and how you uh, recovered him and delivered him and how you were faithful when he was faithless. Lord, we are so encouraged that you are so faithful when we are faithless and it's by the blood of Jesus that we um, are reckoned righteous and... um, Lord, I just pray that that will just amaze us tonight. As we leave here, that we'll just consider these truths and gnaw on your movement, your deliverance, and that we'll be amazed by grace. We'll see a greater distance between you and us, and that we'll appreciate even more the power of the cross and the depth of grace and um, just how wide and deep your love is for us. Lord, we love you so much. We are amazed by grace tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.